This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most, my beautiful audience all around the world. Thanks for tuning in. There's a lot you could be doing, but I appreciate you not only tuning in, but contacting me a lot and telling me what's going on in your life. I love to write you back every time. Today, I have a really interesting show. I love writing, reading, poetry. And today we have a writer, a poet, and really a creator on, tenderhearted artist, as she calls herself. And it's such a joy to welcome up in the great white north of Toronto to the family for the first time, Jessica Jans. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. I'm so happy to be here. First, I have some sociology and anthropology to deal with. Are the Canadians just nicer than Americans? And I know you're too nice. You'll probably say, no, we're not. But all my personal experience and and extensive evidence says otherwise. Well, I am a dual citizen, so I feel like I should give a, I have to give a diplomatic answer or I feel compelled to uh, defend everyone in my answer. But Canadians are very polite. Um, When I lived in the States, people would always make fun of me for how much I said sorry and the way that I said it. So uh, yeah, everyone's super like, yeah, very kind. I, and the different pockets of like folksiness, depending on where you are in the country also uh, shifts and changes too. And you vote with your feet. You live in Canada. Sure. Yeah. I, I lived in California, which obviously you know, since I was a kid, that was sort of the projected dream and never thought I would leave it. So it is pretty wild um, that I am no longer there or currently not there. I was just there a few weeks ago for a wedding um, and it, you know, definitely put on a good show. um, But Toronto is home for now. Yeah. What is the difference that draws you to Toronto over California? I moved to Toronto when I was 19 from the West Coast. I grew up outside of Vancouver, British Columbia, and uh, lived here for eight and a half years. And before I moved to California, my friend Ryan and I had started a monthly dinner series for strangers um, where we would invite people who didn't know each other. And then we no one could say what they did for work. And then we would curate questions for the night. So everyone was part of the same conversation. And after my time in California, I moved there for a relationship and ended up working as an assistant to a tech billionaire. It was this really crazy, just sort of alternate universe experience. Um, And the job wasn't as an, it confirmed working in that world that I was like, oh, I'm definitely an artist and this is all not for me. And the relationship didn't work out and all that sort of thing. So it was sort of like, do I start from scratch? here in San Francisco, or do I go back and turn this dream dinner series into a business? So um, it was less about geography and just about people, I guess, and and the opportunities that were here and what I had already created in my creative community in Toronto. Um, But of course, that was in February of 2020. And so I moved back and then five weeks later, the world ended. (laughs) So dinner and uh, strangers became not a thing for a while here. Uh, So my whole world, you know, whatever, as people have quote unquote pivoted, I have also done so. But um, initially the move back was uh, to work on that project. And uh, yeah, so less about leaving California and just about what was here in Toronto. 
How did the COVID experience affect your creativity? It was actually a pretty incredible experience for me. I felt almost guilty in a way. Guilt is not the right word, but I felt like I was getting away with something a little bit because obviously the uncertainty threw me for a loop as it did for everyone else. But I had experienced a different kind of isolation in San Francisco where I felt away from myself, I think. And um, so I was reflecting a lot on that as I came back. And then, you know, I was living alone. So that was a crazy experience, but I also was able to, because of the stillness, the the like mandated stillness and the mandated quiet, um, I was also in this process of returning to myself and returning to my craft and able to write for the first time uh, in a really long time and create a routine for myself. And I was waking up and writing every day. And um, so it really impacted, like it, it, changed my, it changed my habits and stuff, but it was more because my life the year and a half before COVID looked so different than, uh, what COVID did. And I had moved anyway, and was going through a transition anyway. And then COVID just sort of amplified the change or amplified, um, the shift that I needed. Is community the antidote to so much that ails us these days? It seems like we're in so many silos isolated, even if we're all in a coffee shop, everyone's looking at a screen with headsets on. It feels like that goes against our DNA as communal creatures. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's totally true. I found, you know, live, moving to a new city and felt like I kind of failed building community in, in San Francisco, and which of course wasn't true, like going back a few weeks ago and being so busy with this flurry of friends to see and everything was such a confirmation that even, um, even in a season where I didn't feel like myself or felt like this sort of shell of myself that I still met these beautiful people that like anchored me during that time. But we need, I mean, I, I strongly believe that we need each other and that we are wired for connection and the way that our world works and these algorithms that amplify what we already think and show us people who like the same things as us and, you know, kind of this confirmation bias all the time that shows up in our world, like has, as you said, like silos us really into these corners of the world where we think, how can anyone think, like, how is it not so clear that you think exactly the same way that I do? And of course, that's like life is so much more muddy than that. And the world is so much more muddy and our perspectives are and our experiences are. And I believe in all things that we are, we are changed by the stories of others. And we are, we like become softer by the stories of others. We grow because of the stories of others. We can understand other people's experiences by listening and slowing down and asking better questions. And I think I'm, and myself included, like I continue, like I'm, I'm a, I'm a student of that because I, I'm not, I'm not great at slowing down and listening, especially with someone who might disagree with me at like my ears get hot and I get defensive or I might shut down or my voice gets, you know, like learning how to have those really difficult discussions I know is the key to sort of the, the social and political and cultural climate that we're in. And yet it's really, it's really hard work. It's really hard to do that. This beautiful belief system. Was that the fertile ground in which this dinner series evolved? How did it even first start? I love the idea. And I used to do something sort of like that in Nashville, but not 
as organized as your thing was? Yeah, um, my friend Ryan, who I co-host with, um, had been to a similar dinner and his friend Lucia had started a dinner because she um, was working from home and she was a content writer um, and, you know, pre-COVID before we even knew that that was, you know, she felt like kind of an outlier in that way. (laughs) That was how her life worked. And so she wanted to create a dinner just to have FaceTime with people and she's vegan. And so she'd make this like beautiful four course, like extravagant dinner and wanted to kind of introduce that to her, um, friends and connections and wanted to get FaceTime with people that she met on it through her online community. So, um, Ryan had been invited to one of her dinners and then she was moving to New York. So I had heard the idea and I was like, let's, we should do this. I would love to do this. And this was, we, so we started this in 2017. So way before COVID. And even then it was already like, we're all on our phones. We're all simulating connection and intimacy through, uh, social media. We feel like we're caught up with our friends because we saw their picture of their kids today, but you know, there's this smoke and mirrors thing of social media where, um, you know, we see the highlight reel and we don't actually, it's not the same as calling that friend and saying like, how was your week? How are you feeling? What are you asking yourself about? Um, and so we knew that connection was important and we knew that getting out of our well-worn ruts of conversation is important. Like I, even with good friends or if I go to a family dinner, we kind of, you know, I can, you can kind of predict the way the conversation is going to go and that we're going to catch up and then we're going to talk about this. And then this topic might come up that we may or may not want to delve into and, um, and then we go home or whatever. And so to, to get out of that and think about deeper questions and better questions that we might actually go somewhere new, um, or learn something about each other, I think is, uh, a really important thing to do. And it's interesting. You made the rule. You can't ask what you do, what your vocation is, which I think is technically against the law in California. I know it's against the law in Los Angeles. <laughs> Absolutely. Because usually you have to ask the person within the first 38 seconds what you do, no matter what the situation, and then quickly evaluate if they could help you climb up or they need to be climbed over or just ignored because they're worthless. Absolutely. Yeah. I think in networking scenarios, that's like definitely uh, happens all the time. But I think that it's like we ask that because we've been taught to or we're not sure when we ask someone what do you do for work? What we're actually saying is, can you tell me something about yourself? And we just don't know what other question to ask, or that feels too intense. And we're saying like, I would like to know something about you, which feels really vulnerable because we're not in the habit of asking that. Then if I were to ask you that, then you might be totally off guard and completely shut down. And I think we're hoping that your job sounds interesting or will know something about it that I can offer something conversational in response that it will unlock some sort of discussion and we'll go from there. But very often people either have a job that maybe they don't, um, it says very little about, about them. And there's another question that's better. And, um, for Ryan and I, Ryan's a hairdresser and he found that if he got on the conversation with work with clients, then he would listen to people complain about their jobs or, um, you know, not in a whining way, but like that there was like work conflict or that they felt completely un, 
unrealized or like um, that they weren't getting fulfillment out of their job. And because I have always been an artist and I was in my twenties, I was in a band for a really long time. And so I worked in restaurants. And so if someone said, what do you do for work? The answer is, well, I'm a server, but that told you very little about myself. Um, And then there's sort of a third category. My friend Nathan came to one of our dinners and he had kind of missed the rule that you're not supposed to talk about what you do for work. And he had just finished med school. So he could finally say, I'm a doctor. And because he had sacri- you know, traded in all this time and social, you know, social hours and all that sort of thing in order to go to school and complete his work that he was really passionate about. Um, it was sort of this thing that he, you know, the one impressive thing about himself, he felt that he could hold up and say like, look, I'm legitimate and socially like, look at this cool, impressive title that I finally earned and worked, you know, it was well-deserved. Um, and I just watched him for the first 30 minutes of the dinner, like talk himself through, like he just totally had a cri- like an identity crisis of like, who am I without this title? So whether you don't like your job or you're putting too much weight on your job, either way, it's a cool experiment to say like, who are you without this title? And is it freeing or is it a challenge? And like, it does it challenge what you tell yourself about yourself if you take your, the name of your job away or does it open up? it evens the playing field because someone might hear what Nathan has to say and take it more seriously because, Oh, he's a doctor versus someone, you know, I'm just quote unquote, a server just in air quotes. Um, maybe, but when everyone's equal at the table, um, everyone is just human to each other. And that's great. Somebody asked me the other day for the first time in a while, what is it you do? And I almost was, it was rare. I was actually caught a tad flat-footed speechless, which is very rare, as my friends and listeners would probably agree. I thought, oh, <laughs> huh? I had to really like reorder myself around that. I, What do I mm. do? I mean, what, every day or in general? And then I had to say, well, what do you mean? And they're like, oh, for like work, what's your thing? What do you do? And I had to explain that I do this podcast. I used to write books, but it's not really what I am and all that. So it went into an interesting and you could tell they didn't know how to, it was like two softwares trying to figure out how to interface. <laughs> yeah, totally. Jess, if we sat down next to each other at a coffee shop and you, what would you ask me to break the ice to try to get to know me or even across from dinner? What, what are, what are questions that you use or what, or do you just play it like I do, whatever arises rather than a planned, you know, my 10 things I learned at that seminar. I think with in like the coffee shop kind of way, just starting with like, how is your day going? Um, and trying and I think a question, something I've learned about question asking is um, it can get really overwhelming if someone asks, for instance, like, what is your favorite movie of all time? If someone asks me that my brain totally shuts down and I'm like, I can't remember a single movie title that I've ever heard. But if you say, um, have you seen a great movie lately or what's a movie that you've enjoyed lately? I can, it takes the pressure off of like, maybe I'm bad at black and white or ultimatums or something. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so I think asking questions that unlock uh, like what's been the best part of your week is a great question as opposed to like, what's the best thing that's ever happened to you, obviously. And it, it, in the dinner setting, that type of question 
um, there's no one upping because it's okay if this isn't like the best week of your entire life. Someone might have gotten married last week. And so they'd be like, well, I got married. So that was pretty amazing. And then someone might say like, oh, the best part of my week was a great recipe. Let me tell you about it. And both of those are beautiful and interesting and tell you something about that person and allows them to talk about something that they're passionate about or have discovered. But it, it there's not this like ranking system of like whose story or whose week is best. It's just, again, just asking tell me something that you tell me something you love or tell me something that excited you or, or lit you up um, and choosing kind of uh, asking that question in all the different ways that, that you can. Um, and some of the, some examples just in general that we've talked about at the dinner that I love are, there are some questions that we trick people into talking about what they're good at, which I love. <laughs> um, it's like some like endearing manipulation almost maybe not actually, but, um, I think, uh, we'll ask like if any activity was an Olympic sport, what are you guaranteed to win gold in? Um, instead of asking some, like, tell us something you're good at, which feels like this like really harsh question. Um, and it gets people talking about, yeah, like random, random, uh, activities that they're good at. Like, uh, my friend Billy answered, uh, he's really, or maybe shouldn't use his name because this is incriminating, but he said he's really good at texting and driving (laughs) and everyone was like appalled. And he was like, I don't know, I'm really good at it. And we told, we asked him to promise not to do that, um, anymore, but he's really good at that. So again, it opens up kind of silly things or allows people to talk about, um, something that they, something that they're really passionate about that may or may not, they may not be excellent in, but they love a lot. And uh, those are the kinds of questions that I love to unlock with people. You could have said my late friend, Billy, you said that night. (laughs) He was really good at driving and texting. God rest his soul. Mm -hmm. What about, what are you most excited about right now or inspired about? And I'll I'll say, I'll ask you that directly. I've been, in the last few months or all year really been thinking about collective art and making art with people. And, um, I've been calling my, like the way that I've been enjoying writing my Harriet, the spy, uh, era of writing. I'm doing a lot of like observational, like sitting in a coffee shop. And the other day I was, um, working in a coffee shop and, and this man was, um, standing outside, like pacing about waiting for someone. Um, and the parking lot was like behind me, I guess, like I was looking forward at him and all of a sudden his demeanor changed and like this megawatt smile took over his face. And I, I didn't know who he was looking at, but obviously the person he was waiting for had shown up and like his smile, just like, I don't know that like he just became like the softest person in the world. And what I assumed was a a date, like maybe a, a blind date, or maybe they had met a few times, but they sat down and I just observed the, like the electricity of, of their connection and their conversation, um, changed, I don't know, impacted me, obviously. Like it was just such a beautiful thing to witness. And, um, so I've been, you know, I wrote about that and wrote a poem or like a, I don't know, essay at, I guess, for, about that. Um, and I've been doing this project. It's a weekly project um, through social media where I post a question box. So I'll ask um, 
what's a question you're asking yourself lately or what do you want or what you hoping for or what's something you used to believe but you don't anymore and then my uh, community of followers will respond with like hundreds of answers which is just so wild to receive and listen to and then I write a poem from everyone's answer and just really seeing that it's so powerful to read through them and I try and make it sound as if it's one person or like to read as if it's you know it could be one person saying all these things, but knowing that each line is contributed um by a different person and that like the message becomes so much bigger than something that I could come up with myself. It's so much stronger. We can go so much further together than, um, than we can alone. And also just to see either you, I, you either see, wow, people are going through something that I had no idea. Like, look at what everyone is carrying at any given time, or you see yourself reflected in someone's answer and see, like, I am not alone in the thing that I am experiencing. So, um, yeah, I've just been thinking, a lot about, I don't, is it too broad to say the human experience? I think at any given time, I'm just like, um, in awe of our just existence, I guess. And, and that we all, um, get to experience this life together and, and talk about all this kind of stuff. So yeah, that's, what's been exciting me lately. You are preaching to the choir because <laughs> I am so fascinated by human beings my whole life, I can watch them anywhere, never be bored, airports, coffee shops. I could sit for hours, much to the annoyance of friends or or even ex sadly ex-girlfriends, like, really? Come on, let's get out of here. <laughs> That's right. No, no, watch these two over here. Or I want to see if this were, or the nuances. I feel like Jane Goodall, except with uh, the hominids here. And even if we're doomed, I, I don't know. The jury's out on the species. It might have run its course. <laughs> and by the way, the earth is saying, please, God, yes, and every species. But it's still fascinating. Had a nice run, kind of reached a pinnacle and kind of blew itself up or killed its own home off. But life goes on in infinite forms beyond people watching. This might be soul and spirit watching at the ethereal cafe where you're just like, look, you and I could be sitting there going, look at the colors of that soul's field. Can you sit like that and just? watch for hours and oh yeah absolutely and funny to say exit like i i dated someone who if we went to a restaurant i always had to face the wall <laughs> which i said once to a friend and she was like but you're so not meant to face the wall like your your like take on the world is so beautiful and that was like i had said it as a joke like it wasn't a joke i literally would like if we ate i would face the wall to not do it but to, she was like, your observations are so needed. Like that's what you need. But I could understand that that would feel frustrating sometimes, you know, like my attention was everywhere <laughs> for sure. can be ping ponging around because I, I can look around a restaurant and I'm like, oh my gosh, those people are on a first date and those people are fighting and that person's flirting with the bartender. And I just like have the whole narrative of the whole social space. And, um, to me that's entered. Yeah. I could like, I don't need to listen, like watch a show. I would just need to like go out for dinner and, get all the not even that it's entertaining like just awe really that um yeah I think Glennon Doyle talks about this of like being out at a restaurant and just being like how are we all just having dinner when you're you know someone's mom just died next to you know and like those people you know like they just had a baby and all of these amazing crazy devastating wonderful things are happening to people at any given time and we're just all here 
eating pizza. Like what? It's crazy. So yeah, I get overwhelmed by that all the time. While hurtling through space on a giant magnet. That's what we're doing. And I like I was a server a million years ago and I I didn't like cleaning ketchup bottles, but I love the interaction of the people and trying to read the people. I felt like I learned way more serving tables than I ever did in college. Just that to be able to interact with people and read how they are and what they wanted or and and also just to watch. It's fascinating. When did you start writing? Were you writing as a kid? I was definitely writing as a kid and um, yeah, always creative and yeah, making up stories. I think it's, it's like being a highly sensitive and very emotional kid writing or creativity has how is how I've made sense of the world and sort of channeled all of those feelings into something that felt encompassed, I guess, like letting it land somewhere made it feel a little bit more contained. Um, not in like a smothered way, like just in, you know, if, if it didn't go, if I didn't do anything with it, it was just too insurmountable, like too big of, uh, of a feeling. So art was helpful to like channel that and kind of find words for all of the things I was thinking about and feeling. Um, and yeah, I, uh, journaled a lot and like made up stories. There's like an infamous Jan's family tale of in grade two, when you're like learning how to read and write, you journal and draw pictures or whatever. And you're like working on spelling and all that kind of stuff. And so I had said, just boldface lied in my journal that we had gone to an orphanage for Thanksgiving. And my friend and I were in charge of the babies. And like, it just like, that just never happened. Like we, there was no orphanage and there was no, um, taking care of babies and stuff. So then it was, you know, parent to come to classroom day or whatever. And my mom always wanted to go for the journal. Cause that's where the good stuff is, where we say crazy things or misspell things and, you know, funny things happen in the journal. And I was like, oh yeah, we don't do that in grade two. Like, I don't know. It's just not a thing. And she knew of course that one, that was not true. And two, there must've been something going on in the journal or whatever. So, um, I choose to believe that I, it was my creativity taking over, but I do know, I think I was trying to impress my teacher to think that I was selfless and caring and all that kind of stuff too. So, um, yeah. So always, always writing and creating and, um, played music for a long time. That was sort of my first, uh, identity as an artist, I guess, and, um, loved, loved performing and loved like, uh, kind of making art through that. So. Did you write songs? I know you sang too, right? And did you play, I think you play guitar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I played, I learned how to play guitar at a really young age and started songwriting, I think when I was like 12. And um, hopefully those songs, they don't need to see the light of day in modern times, but you got to start somewhere. Um, I grew up going to church and and our church was like a really musical uh musical place and got involved really early. And that's where I learned, uh, kind of how to, how to play music. And at 16 started playing in coffee shops and performing, and then, um, joined a band when I was 21 here in Toronto, we were in a band. I was in a band for five and a half years here. And, uh, yeah, that was my main form of expression, which is really fun. Are you an empath? Is that what I'm picking up? Or are you very empath- empathic with people? Like when you're around people and can you feel st- feel stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. How do you work that in the world? That can be really hard. 
Well, one thing that's hard about that is that I immediately also think that I am the root of the tension that I'm feeling. So instead of just going like, uh, so I'm working on rewiring that of like, you know, there's lots of different reasons why someone might be tense and I may not be, uh, the, yeah, the root of that. Um, but it can, it can be really hard. Like I get really, I can be really distracted by, you know, picking up on tension. Yeah. If people are, have been arguing or people are uncomfortable and trying to decipher if it's my, if it would be helpful to lean into that and, and, and ask them about it or, um, you know, if that is my responsibility to, to lean into, I mean, yeah, I think in life there's at any given time, there's invitations all over the place to participate in things with people. Um, but sometimes it's like, I don't know if it's on the bus and you can tell someone's having a hard day, like there's not, I don't think there's anything wrong with asking someone how their day is going or like sharing that human present moment with them. And also sometimes it's not the place to unpack it, or they might feel uncomfortable unpacking it, or you're not the person to unpack it with. And that's totally fine. So, um, yeah, just trying to, I think that's been a lesson in the last couple of years is like learning what to do with that empathic sort of, uh, wavelength that's going on and to what extent to engage and like how to stay in my own energy, I guess, um, when there is stuff going on and yeah, to what extent to kind of give it the, the microphone of the situation. As a writer, you also like to teach people to expand their creativity. What are some of the tools, practices, tips that you would give to all the aspiring, not only writers out there, but anyone looking to be creative and as Joseph Campbell said, follow their bliss? Yeah, I teach writing workshops. I do like a four week, uh, I offer a four week writing workshop right now, which has been such a fun thing. It's I started my first one in February and it's been amazing to connect with people um, through their writing instead of just sending my own kind of out in my own writing out into the abyss and uh, hoping that it connects with someone. And the, we always start with, I have an exercise. There's a poet in Vancouver named Lance Odegaard, and he has a poem called Author Bio. Um, and it goes something, it talks about how he's been published in no previous journals and his writing hasn't been translated into Russian and he has a rudimentary amount of self-esteem and is often feeling fat. And despite all of this, he writes. And um, so that's my first prompt for people is to write an author, an author bio or what they wish their bio said, um, which is something that has come up a lot um, when you're writing a bio for say a podcast or for, um, submitting a manuscript or that sort of thing. I always have this identity crisis of like, have I been published enough or am I legitimate enough or am I a writer if I'm not a full-time writer? And I think that most people struggle with that of like, they feel this calling to be creative and then they get all hung up on if they're allowed to claim that title for themselves or not. And so our first uh, workshop is always introduce yourself, how you wish you could introduce yourself. Same thing of like taking away your job title and what do you wish you could say or what do you think is actually important for people to know about you? Like how, how do you want to show up in the world and exploring that? And for the rest, um, kind of the second thing I would tell creatives is 
uh, Mary Oliver's quote, uh, instructions for living a life, pay attention, be astonished and tell about it. And I think the paying attention part is, is, um, the most important thing we can do as artists is like protect our ability to pay attention. And in order to pay attention, we have to be at peace enough in our spirit and still enough and, uh, like balanced enough and, and not rushing through our lives in order to catch those moments of beauty and be able to talk about them, like to be able to notice the sky or notice trees changing or notice the, you know, being able to pay attention enough to that guy waiting for his date requires me to, um, like be slow enough in my own spirit to be taking in the world around me. So I think that that's really important um, for creatives to protect. Do you meditate or do any type of mindfulness or awareness practice to cultivate and keep that peace that you spoke of? I would love to say that I have a robust meditative practice. It's like on, uh, you know, I have a couple apps that, you know, Headspace and Insight Timer, and I dip into those and use them to sleep actually, like to at the end of my day more than at the beginning of it. Um, but uh, yeah, I have a sporadic meditation practice, but I ha- like it's preaching to the choir when I say, I think that that's a really good thing for everyone to do. And I go in and out of my practice um, of that, but I do spend um, my morning journaling um, with coffee, which is a reflective practice. And I, I think always coming back to the statement, you are here and, and where is that? And checking in with myself, um, and placing myself like that is, uh, the best has been the most, um, important way to start my day is to, to ask myself, like, where are you and what, what are you worrying about? Or what are you insecure about? Or, um, what's coming up for you and just journaling about that and placing myself first thing in the morning is a uh, part of that practice, which I guess is a form of meditation, but it is not a still form of meditation. <laughs> Sounds like the morning pages, the Julie Cameron artist's way book. Did you ever get into that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That was a huge, um, huge inspiration. Uh, Anne Lamott has, she talked, hers is, she calls it like the shitty first draft, but just getting it all out without editing and like not same concept of just like writing without editing and, and getting it all down. Um, definitely influential people in my writing experience and just creative, creative experience in general. I love the book by Pressfield, the war of art. That one really was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What are you going to do next? Do you have, you seem like you have quite the entrepreneurial spirit. Is that something that runs in your family or is this, you were born this way? <laughs> I definitely, yeah, I have lots of entrepreneurs in my family and um, creative at heart people who do lots of, yeah, there's lots of those in our, uh, in the Jans clan. Um, what am I doing? I am, as you said, it's like, people are like, so what do you do? And I'm like, it doesn't have a concise title. I'm like, well, here are the nine projects I'm working on and trying to get off the ground. Um, I am in the midst of, and trying to get a, a poetry manuscript manuscript published right now. So, um, that is ever in sort of this limbo daunting, like 
is it happening? What's, where are we signing? What's going on? So that's a exciting and scary abyss of, uh, just, you know, hope and expectation and imposter syndrome and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I have relaunched the dinners that I was talking about and, um, have a few coming up in the fall here. If you're in the Toronto area and trying to workshop, uh, for my own, um, yeah, workshop, how to, to make that a more like a scalable thing, or like, how do I offer it in a way that, uh, more people can come. And I do a virtual version of that as well called the collective gathering. Um, so that's a zoom event once a month that I offer the same experience, just no dinner. Um, which might be of benefit because I would not call myself a chef. So you can cook your own dinner and then meet (laughs) everyone online Um, and workshops are coming up. And I just, yeah, I feel like I'm in this um, season of just trying to see what sticks and like creating, like offering experiences that feel important to me that are all based on connection and gathering and sharing um, part of yourself with people that you may or may not know and um trying to make a life out of that and trying uh, by life I mean like it's like location but also trying to figure out the occupation side of all this and you know paying rent is a is a good thing so those are sort of the things coming down the pipeline and um yeah that I'm looking forward to and trying to promote and um that's all I have going on right now do you feel this is a happy joyful connected period of your life and time right now Absolutely. I, I, the feelings are so large right right now, which I guess is always the case, but I, I kind of fluctuate between feeling like this is a season of emergence. And then sometimes it feels really big and scary. And so it feels like a season of exposure and it's really scary to put stuff out in the world and, you know, have an idea for an event and promote it. And then you see like, no one signs up or two people sign up or something. I can be like, what is this saying about myself? Or do you just go back to the drawing board and, um, all in the midst of that, protecting my creative time. Um, but over and over again, just experiencing community in such a beautiful way. And especially cause it's linked so much of my, uh, time, I guess, or like the way that I'm connecting with people is through social media. And so that's sort of a weird beast of like, it's not real life, but it is real life because I'm meeting real people and talking about real things, but it's not the full picture. And so there's kind of like a muddy, funny thing about that. Um, and yet I get to have conversations with people all the time about really important, like things that are really important to me. And I think touch on hopefully like, yeah, what life is all about or what it feels like it's all about to me. And, um, surprised all the time with, um, and just in awe of people all the time. So that's a really beautiful kind of headspace and place to be working in and through all the time. Well, this is the perfect planet if that's your paradigm, because there's (laughs) so much variety at the buffet. That's right. Oh my God. Especially down here in America, but really everywhere. It's if you could detach, I try to think of myself often, like I'm just visiting from another place and planet. Uh, you have a bunch of coupons. You can feel sensual things. Don't fall too deeply in love with the native cultures because they're very transient, but definitely be a kind presence on the planet. Be kind, compassionate. And I had an interesting experience yesterday. There was a super grouchy guy at the coffee shop 
who always seems grouchy. I've seen him around for a couple of years. Yeah. And so we had like a weird encounter at the coffee shop and then synchronicity struck. And I go to this other place miles away. I'm down in the downstairs trying to get a box from the uh, manager guy. And who walks by with a grouchy man? And I said, oh, hey, here we are again. And he rolls his eyes and I said, hey, why not just act like a human being? After a couple minutes of conversation, he confided that he's dealing with really bad cancer. And he has these lumps in his neck. And da, 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 da. and of course, I felt not like a piece of shit, but I just really, I thought one, I said, I said to the guy, I don't want to say his name. It's no accident. We met here again. This is nuts. And I, I, and I don't know if you believe in anything larger, more intelligent. He said, actually, I don't. Well, I said, either way. I, I, and then I said, I'm glad I got to see you again. I'm sorry you had it more with my friend. You had that weird exchange with my friend who was just, who ironically had just beat cancer. I said, you should talk to him. He just came through it. That's why he was, you know, he, the guy said, you, you to my friend, you're being way too loud. He said, so I'm trying to work at a coffee shop restaurant. So my friend said, it's a restaurant. Go to the library. And the guy's like, oh, dear. But then I called my friend. I said, here's the irony. He dealing with extensive cancer, you just beat it. So who knows? But I thought, one, I didn't think it's an accident that you just never really know what people are dealing with. And they're just trying to be kind. At least we walked out of that store the second time, not as enemies. I didn't feel it was an enemy the first time, but there was a softening. And I offered the olive branch that there was support for him if he needed it. Yeah. I, it's so crazy that, yeah, you just never know what people are going through. And yet the, for him, obviously, I mean, I've gone through that or in seasons of grief, you're so insular and like, you just never know what's going on behind the question, you know, how's your day going, you know? And yet when we are willing to share, you know, if he were to say, oh, I just came from chemo or I'm struggling with a cancer treatment, then you're opening yourself up to the possibility that someone's actually going to meet you there in that thing and say, oh my gosh, my friend just went through that, or I went through that, or my partner did, or, um, you know, we, and again, it's like, he's, he doesn't owe you that of course, but we're invited all the time. Like when, when we're willing to be a little bit vulnerable or that's, you know, that's really vulnerable to share a cancer diagnosis with a stranger. And yet, and it might be, you know, you might not be the right recipient. You could have, maybe you're not an empathic person and would just be like, whoa, that's really intense, buddy. Like, and that would feel horrible. And that's the reason why people don't go around sharing that kind of thing all the time. But, um, you know, when we're willing to put our, our stuff out there, we might be met with a knowing or with a softness from someone else. So yeah. What a lesson. Yeah. And I said, but I said, that was an opportunity at the coffee shop. This is another one. It's all what you make it. And you never know what seed you plant. I just think if you can be kind, I got to let you go in a, in a minute. I was just curious. I hear this sometimes from people who are more uh, on the, I don't know, the right brain side or whatever side is less creative. Why is poetry important? Uh, Michael Longley is a poet and he says poetry is useless, but um, it is, I think it's sustenance. I think art in general holds us um, in the places where there are no answers and it gives us a space to be held. And, um, you know, my work is not to tie anything up in a bow, but just to ask better questions and to sit with wonder and 
because there are no answers to someone who's going through cancer or someone whose friend just died. Um, there's nothing, there's not a one for one exchange in, you know, there's nothing that you can say that takes that guy's cancer away, you know, but there's maybe some, you know, a song that makes him feel comforted or, um, you know, someone who's gone through cancer, who's written a poem about that, uh, that just acknowledges and holds the space for that. And I think that's, uh, <laughs> I, that's my, my vote for poetry or like my, my argument for it. Um, yeah, it, it holds space and it, it slows us down. It's like this, um, uh, I was out for drinks with a group of people last month and someone was talking about, um, AI being able to create art and like, you know, getting AI that does copywriting for you. And like, you'll never have to write an email again and, and like takes over your tone and all this kind of stuff that a computer can do it. And, um, there's like a, a human analog, like fingerprint, I think to art that like, I, I, maybe I do this cause I'm like terrible at technology. And so I'm always gonna, gonna vote for like the softer things in life or like the uh, more analog things. But I think there's still a, there's something with a heartbeat or like the metaphorical heartbeat of creating art that you can't replace and that you can feel. And um, not just art, the art piece itself, but like the story behind it and the, the motivation behind what people create is the, the human element and, um, uh, yeah, it's beautiful to be able to write something from my own personal experience that feels universal to someone else because they can see themselves in it. And that's a really powerful thing to participate in all the time. Speaking of that, would you like to read a poem in closing? Sure. I was thinking when you were talking about your coffee shop friend, um, I had an experience recently where someone attempted to troll me they had a <laughs> they which is um you know writing a comment on a post trying to get under your skin like really hit the hit you in the place that hurts and um so I have a poem called all this love and loving and it talks about all the things that um being in love and being loved has changed all the ways that it's changed me and one of the lines is seeing someone bringing a glass of water to my side of the bed as a radical act of tenderness. And this person in an attempt to get under my skin said, what is tender about a effing glass of water? You can't just make shit up. And like went in of like, you don't understand how words work, do you? And all this stuff. And I was like, that's, it was just funny to me of like, if you ask a poet, what is tender about anything, we will quickly find an answer for you. It's like challenge accepted. And like, I can spend all, all my time working through that. So before you read the poem, though, make sure we get that person's name because the what matters most Gestapo police will track them down and beat them senseless. <laughs> well, my friend Sam, that's right. Well, my friend Sam responded to this comment saying, look out, you're going to have this like vengeance of like army of poets respond with poems about water to tell you exactly what is tender about a glass of water. So I wrote a poem called what is tender about a glass of water, which I will read to you. Um, and then people responded, there were about 55 responses where people did write poems. So there was this army of, uh, of vengeance. So, uh, this is called what's tender about a glass of water. 
The way you asked makes me sad, and it makes me wonder if you've ever experienced an act of tenderness in your whole life. If anyone has split a cookie in half and handed you maybe even the bigger piece. If someone has looked at you close enough to see your lip quiver or saw fear in your eyes and brought their hand to your shoulder to hold you steady. If someone heard you let a preference slip, maybe you admit to liking yellow or a movie that makes you laugh or this specific sandwich shop over the next one. And the next time they saw you, they handed you yellow flowers. They got you tickets to a screening of that silly movie. They brought you, in fact, your favorite panini. They even remembered to hold the sun-dried tomatoes. As for me, I would like for there to be a way in this withered, parched world for us to sit together, maybe on a porch. Do you have a nice porch? The view from my balcony at my tiny apartment faces a monstrous condo construction site, but if you lean a bit and squint, you can see the lake. Maybe we could meet under a tree and our knees might knock together. If it's more your thing, we could stand with our feet in the tide up to our ankles, facing out to the sprawling ocean if eye contact makes you feel too exposed. I am okay to stand with you like that. I would like very much to, uh, to sit beside you and talk with you and bring you a glass of water in the afternoon and figure out the questions to ask that make you feel soft and open and seen. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.